1: This is the second episode in a two-part series. Please listen to the Richland County Jane Doe Part 1 before listening to Episode 2. Please note that these episodes discuss medical procedures and decisions made by professionals. We are not experts in these fields and don't have information beyond their notations. There is discussion of autopsy and medical procedure in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line.
2: Yeah. So she is one of perhaps the most intriguing of our cases because she looks like she would be so identifiable. We have her photograph. She was encountered at a hospital. It was a brief encounter of two days long, but she spoke with people. She must have interacted with members of the public or stayed with people, you know, and that's what's kind of is frustrating that no leads could be developed at the time in 1982 to, to give her a name.
1: Last time on The Fall Line, we began the story of the Richland County Jane Doe, a woman who was found on the streets of Columbia, South Carolina in 1982. According to the reports in her file, which were generated first in the Richland County Emergency Room and later at the South Carolina State Hospital, she'd been proselytizing in the streets. She told medical caregivers that she was the daughter of televangelist Oral Roberts, among other things. Based on their observations, it seemed she was experiencing a number of delusions. The emergency room personnel assessed her and recommended her admittance to the state hospital also known as Bull Street where she could receive psychiatric care she had no identification and didn't give them her name she offered her age as 38 though she may have been older later it was noted that she would respond to both jane and virginia possibly names offered to her by medical staff the richland county jane doe's chart was updated on a near hourly basis on february 15th 1982 She'd been at the South Carolina State Hospital for less than a day. Although she'd had a bout of vomiting the night before, what the notes call, quote, a large amount of clear liquid, she had later eaten and interacted with patients and staff. Her first full day in the ward seemed calm, with the last note in her chart that she was, quote, up and walking around, wearing state clothing, talking with others and cooperative. Her vital signs were taken at that time. She was only at the state hospital a short while, about a day. Without any way to share her medical history or conditions, the providers were operating with little information and were only in the early stages of assessing her condition when she had a medical emergency. Based on her chart and input from a former aide who was able to explain the hospital's process, we can reasonably say that the likely scenario is as follows the Richland County Jane Doe had a seizure while in her bed at about 7.30 p.m. Though a pathology report says that she had been in isolation at the time, a few factors point towards her having been moved to a double-use observation slash isolation room so that the staff could watch her until a doctor on call could assess her. A former aide also told us that to have fallen out of bed and cut her head, as the report states, she would have been in a standard room, not in isolation where mattresses were on the floor. After assessing the Richland County Jane Doe, the doctor made the call to have her move to the on-campus hospital, the Burns Building. From there, we have her primary chart as our guide through the last hours of her life. The following information is reported directly from those notes. When she was still at Williams at 7.45 p.m., both Valium and Dilantin were prescribed. At 7.55, volume was given, and doctors we consulted indicated that this could be given after a seizure. By 8 p.m., she was on a stretcher on her way to the state hospital's own emergency ward. By 9.10, in the ER, her head wound was treated, but she was described as, quote, continuing to have rigid body movements. An x-ray was ordered. At 11.18 p.m., she was given coramine, a respiratory stimulant. At 11.23, there's a notation of, quote, an oxygen mask at five liters. Between 11.23 and 11.39, she is administered, quote, adrenaline for precardiac arrest. At 11.39, she's no longer breathing. 11.40, CPR performed. 11.46, the Richland County Jane Doe is pronounced dead by the physician on duty. In less than 24 hours, she would be in a pathologist's office, awaiting autopsy. Her autopsy would be performed at the Richland Memorial Hospital. We have a copy of this document and a list of the pathologist's major findings. To walk us through what he discovered and her final cause of death, we spoke to Dr. Grace Dukes, who is a forensic pathologist at Prisma Health Upstate and a former pathologist for the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. For transparency's sake, Dr. Dukes is a relative of one member of the Fall Line team. She isn't offering an opinion on treatment, the quality of pathology, or any other critique. We've simply asked her to break down the patient's pathology report.
3: In the report, Jane Doe's cause of death is listed as respiratory insufficiency secondary to aspiration of gastric contents. The manner of death is listed as accidental. The major findings in the autopsy are the respiratory findings, because that is what caused her death. I'll start with those. The respiratory findings include pulmonary congestion and edema. Anytime the blood vessels in the lungs become too full or congested, that's what's it's meant by congested, the fluid will... Potentially damage those vessels and start to leak out into the air spaces. And when you have the fluid from the blood leaking out into the air spaces, that fills the air spaces and you no longer get oxygen exchange, which is what usually happens over those air spaces in the lungs. So that's pulmonary edema. That's when you have fluid in the lungs that has leaked out of the blood. Also, part of the respiratory findings listed is focal intraalveolar hemorrhage. And just like I was talking about the fluid in the air spaces of the lungs this is just hemorrhage into the air spaces of the lungs this is actual blood leaking out into the air spaces and that contributes to that contributes to that decreased gas exchange I was talking about but that's less of a factor here than the pulmonary edema the second finding in the respiratory system is extensive bilateral aspiration of gastric contents so aspiration into the lungs means something in the airway that's not supposed to be there that is forced by suction and in the lungs the suction part just means breathing it's breath- breathes in so there is extensive bilateral aspiration meaning there is aspiration of gastric contents that came up from the gastric system crossed over into the airway and then filled the lungs and that means that this He says that this happened bilaterally uh, and was everywhere. There was a lot of gastric contents. So normally our body has a mechanism, multiple mechanisms, where we can prevent gastric contents from filling our lungs. Uh, Someone could potentially aspirate a small amount of fluid, for example, during sleep. But your body has ways to deal with that. Your body will close off its airway or you will cough or do something else to clear your airway. Aspiration happens when those mechanisms fail and the gastric contents, which have come up from the stomach, then cross over into your airway and go down and can potentially fill your lungs as they did here. Another major finding for Jane Doe was a recent grand mal seizure by history. A seizure is just an abnormality in electrical activity in the brain that causes Various changes in the body, including what people think of as seizing, where your uh, where your muscles contract abnormally. Having a seizure like this puts someone at risk for aspiration following that seizure. So those normal mechanisms that prevent gastric contents from entering your airway are no longer working like they're supposed to. And after a seizure, you're at increased risk of aspiration. So Jane Doe had bilateral aspiration of these gastric contents, probably as a result of her grand mal seizure that she experienced shortly before. Another finding in the respiratory system is focal acute bronchopneumonia, and that's just a pneumonia, acute inflammation of the bronchi in the lung, uh, the smaller airways in the lung. This is caused by that aspiration. Anytime there is a foreign material in the airway, it's going to cause an irritation to those linings of the airway, and they become congested and edematous, just like we were saying earlier, fluid leaks out into the tissues. And as a result of that irritation, your body creates an inflammatory response to that area. So this focal acute bronchopneumonia is listed because Jane Doe, Aspirated gastric contents caused that irritation to her airway, and her body was in the process of creating an acute pneumonia of her airways.
1: We also had questions about medical interventions, what was done or could have been done. We reached out to several doctors for their insight. We'd wondered why the Richland County Jane Doe wasn't intubated to assist with her breathing, but two different doctors we spoke to cautioned us in that area. According to them, there are just too many unknown factors at play, much more than we might understand from a necessarily brief note. Without all the information, we can't say one choice is better than another or that the outcome would have been any different. When the Richland County Jane Doe arrived at the state hospital, she was essentially a blank slate. No medical history to help them decide the best course of action. During our research... We came across stories of the hospital's successes and its controversies, no different than any other institution we've covered. One of the more disturbing incidents occurred in 1984 and was covered in William Buckeye's book. He cites an Aiken Standard article on the death of a state hospital patient, a woman with cognitive disabilities, who died while in the hospital's care. The institution would eventually face a lawsuit over her treatment, specifically she was left in a straitjacket for 13 hours. Apparently, she died of, quote, an epileptic seizure while still in restraints. Author William Buckeye wrote that, quote, her death occurred despite hospital rules that required patients to be released from such suits every two hours for exercise. Three nurses' aides were charged with failing to follow hospital protocol, end quote. In the chapter where he discusses this patient's death, He also includes a lengthy interview with a longtime nurse who acknowledged that while events like this had occurred over her tenure, they were, quote, the exception rather than the rule. And she offers some of the most harrowing stories in the book, accounts of the toll not just on patients but on staff. But of the caregivers he interviewed, and there were dozens, there are also many positive views of the hospital. For each story of concern over a treatment or worry over lack of supervision, there was another of individualized attention or an aide holding a dying person's hand or another getting a hospital pass to take a patient to a Christmas celebration. So from staff, there's plenty of acknowledgement of things that should have been done differently, but also examples of the right decisions. And the Richland County Jane Doe was at the South Carolina State Hospital for such a short time. She arrived during one of the hospital's lean times, but based on the limited information we have, we can't say that she suffered from any lack of care. Procedure seems to have been followed. The question we can ask and try to address now is, of all of the Does in the United States, her case is comparatively detailed pictures, self-reported information, and some medical and dental records. So, can she be identified? And are there any cases in NamUs that might be a match? If you'll recall her description, she was a white woman, ostensibly at least middle class, based on the care of her teeth, and she may have had children. The combination of those factors, white, middle class, middle-aged, a probable mother in America, she might have made the news. If she'd actually gone missing, that is. If she'd been in a group home or another facility, nothing was reported. Was she with a caretaker who had indeed put her out of the home? Had she lost touch with family who didn't know to report her missing? There's a thousand possibilities. She'd be easy to recognize from her picture. She was a small woman, about 5'3", 130 pounds with blue eyes, brown hair, but it's her prominent cheekbones and deep-set eyes that make her face memorable. Enough so that when we were searching through NamUs for possibilities, we came across only a few women that might, might be considered for further matching. But before we went through their databases, we wanted to know more about what had been done to identify her after her death. There's an early bulletin and forensic sketch in her file something that was likely circulated to law enforcement in the 1980s. It was produced by the Richland County coroner. It's a good likeness, though she looks older in the sketch than she does in her state hospital photo, maybe even more than 50. On that flyer, they've managed to include everything she told them about her life, accurate or not, probably because her stories of the Sioux tribe of North Dakota, of being Oral Roberts' daughter, might ring a bell with someone somewhere. There isn't much activity in her case between the 1980s and 1990s, not on the coroner side of things. But then again, the police would have their own file and they might have received a number of tips or matches or information that is not included in the records we received. In our research, it's become common to discover that bodies have been cremated. Between stretch budgets and limited burial space, many counties have cremated remains which are sometimes buried and other times toured with a coroner, or the crime lab, or a state agency. It just depends. That eventually happened in Richland, too, but not in 1982. Because some of the earliest John and Jane Does, dating back to the early 80s, or were in a local cemetery, exhumations would be possible. And by the 1990s, science had developed, as had the regularity of consults with forensic anthropologists. It's the willingness of a department and its budget that can make an exhumation possible. And as we told you last episode, the Richland County Coroner's Office is passionate about their cold case work. Under former County Coroner Frank Barron, who would have overseen the office from 1978 until 2000, such work was also encouraged. That meant that when the chance to work with Ted Rathbun, the forensic anthropologist, came, the office took it. We asked Deputy Coroner Bill Stevens to walk us through that process. In uh,
2: 1996, the then coroner Frank Barron, was um, impressed with the ability of, of forensic anthropology to um, generate things like facial reconstructions, and then re-examine some of these bodies that were buried in the in the 80s and in, in our county cemetery in Northeast Columbia. And um, they had also this kind of coincides with the time frame that they started um uh cremating and burying urns instead of bodies so i think there was a push to remove the casketed burials f- from this place so they could bury urns and then these bodies were um unidentified and i think a couple were were identified but just you know a pauper burial or an unclaimed body um but these were well marked and they got uh, i think there were three, four total exhumed. And Jane Doe was one of them. And the Dr. Rathbun and uh, two graduate students were involved in pulling the caskets up. And these bodies had been embalmed and buried, I think, in s- simple wooden caskets. And Dr. Rathbun and the graduate students would take them to University of South Carolina Anthropology Lab. And um, they had, still had a lot of soft tissue and and fluid in the caskets and um, they cleaned them up with hot water. And they may have used a bit of bleach back in those days. They, they did to kind of clean up and whiten the bones. Nowadays, we don't use bleach uh, peroxide, if anything, which is not damaging to bone. But um, so these skeletons are a bit um, damaged, you know, they lost a little integrity and the embalming process is a, a frustration to us now in getting good DNA profiles from them due to degradation and contamination.
1: Was it typical at that time to embalm unidentified folks and bury
2: them? I think so. It being They were all treated in that manner. And, um, you know, given the full, you know, even to have eye caps and coverings and things to hold their mouth you know, inserted nails to wire their jaw shut, just treat it as a funeral. That's what they had available as a, a funeral director who did it by a standard protocol. They did reports on each one and um, um, did a standard forensic anthropology report on Jane, even though so much was already known about her. And then the, bo- the uh, bones were, you know, dried and stored with Dr. Rathbun in his lab securely for many years until... Um, I became acquainted with Jane Doe in the late nineties as part of the collection of remains which were um, um some stored securely, others used for teaching but um when Dr Rathman retired were brought back to the coroner's office here or all of our cases to keep them securely locked in evidence rather than uh locked up at the university so what I've done with her case and others is to um review all the anthropology reports and um, to uh, sample for DNA and send to University of North Texas and then create NamUs.gov profiles. As I can say, we've probably compared Jane Doe to 15 or 20 uh, missing persons and some of them with striking resemblances to her photograph, you know, very close physical resemblance, but um, been able to rule them out mostly with dental records. I mean, having her her dry bones and teeth. Her DNA is uh, up online with CODIS, FBI, and offender databases, but it produces nothing in terms of a, a match to anyone. We hope that she could be submitted for genetic genealogy, but right now her sample is not adequate to do that. So, If we continue resampling and then as technology gets better, their protocols change, perhaps they can get a sample that would allow us to do um, public databases, genetic genealogy, and to uh, produce leads as to relatives for Jane.
1: To better understand Dr. Rathburn's data, we spoke to Dr. Amy Michael, a forensic anthropologist and lecturer at the University of New Hampshire. Dr. Michael actually knew Dr. Rathbun, and we shared our files with her so she could offer her opinions on the Richland County Jane Doe. We were interested in what she could tell us about any features that might be specific or individual enough to aid in identification.
4: So Rathbun's report mentions a few pretty interesting um, features on this individual. Uh, there's uh, The first thing that popped out to me was that there's no trauma or pathology really noted whatsoever in her remains and again that's not unusual or any uh, by any stretch and you know you can of course suffer from all kinds of diseases that don't have skeletal correlates but what i noticed that um he said in particular uh, in the teeth were these grooves at the top of the teeth. And so, um, he mentioned that this could be part of like habitual stressors or occupational stressors. And I think that what he meant by that was that sometimes we see these grooves in the teeth from like toothpick activity, um, or using teeth as tools. So in cultures where, um, in particular, we see these in women, when women are doing like needlepoint or needlecraft activities, they might, uh, they kind of stick the needle in their teeth to hold it there. Um, But from my understanding of the report, these grooves are at the top of the teeth. They're not in the interproximal spaces, meaning between the teeth. So I'm not sure at all um, what Uh, The case is with this decedent. My other thought was that maybe these grooves are actually what we would call linear enamel hypoplasias. And these hypoplasias are basically interruptions or cessations of enamel growth. Um, And we see these in individuals who have chronic health stress that health stress can be nutritional, it can be disease related, it can be um, emotional or psychological. So we don't really know what causes the stress. We just know that there is kind of this dental correlate of chronic stress in individuals. But the interesting thing about that, if that is the case for um, this decedent, is that the adult teeth are forming in childhood. So if if that is, if those grooves are linear enamel hypoplasias, we're really answering a question about her childhood um, health stress or chronic stress. So that's what popped out to me um, in terms of individualizing characteristics about this person. He mentions, too, that she has some incipient spina bifida. Um, this really is not all that uncommon, and it probably would not have affected her, and she would not have known um. Anything uh, about that incipient condition in life. So, um, aside from the kind of interesting teeth, there are not a lot of individualizing features about her. There's no um, healed fractures that Rathbun noted, there's no traumatic lesions, um, there's nothing to indicate that she suffered from like metabolic stressors or anything like this.
1: I thought it was interesting that Rathbun, you know, he had her age range set at about 38 to 50, but he Mm -hmm. felt that it would have been in the outer reaches of that range. It indicated to him that maybe she was closer to 50 than 40.
4: Yeah. And I think that, you know, I'm just totally speculating from the report, but my guess is that he would have thought that based on she's got um, some significant antemortem tooth loss. And there's always, of course, the assumption that we see that in older individuals, but that's not quite true either, right? Because um, antemortem tooth loss or tooth loss before death can be uh, simply due to like hygiene, right? And the way that you take care of your teeth. It can be due to your access to dental health care. It can be due to medications that you take um, that negatively affect uh, your enamel and your dentition and your oral health overall.
1: According to Dr. Michael, the Richland County Jane Dose teeth might be helpful in identification in another way too, via isotopic testing.
4: So strontium isotope analysis is a great method to use if you have a forensic case of an individual of unknown origin. So what strontium isotope analysis does is it essentially looks at uh, strontium signatures in the teeth to estimate where that person grew up. So as your teeth form in childhood, as your adult teeth form in childhood, um, you know you're drinking the local water of wherever you grew up and the strontium isotopes are kind of embedded into your teeth. So we use this in archaeology a lot actually. Um, to determine if people that were buried in a particular place are local or non-local to that place. And it makes a lot of sense to use this in forensic cases too because if you have an unknown doe um, and you're have you you're starting from scratch, you have no idea where this person came from, if family members are looking for them in California but they were recovered in Louisiana or something like this, um, you might want to try strontium isotope analysis to estimate or to get just a sense of at least where they grew up um, during the time that those teeth were forming in childhood. Um, so in this case, I think that that would be great to do for Richland County Jane Doe, because um, it's just completely unknown where she may have come from initially. Um, and of course, this the, the caveat to this is that the place where you grew up could be a place that you haven't lived in for for the greater part of your life, or at least for many, many years, but it at least gives you another clue um, in the overall, you know, kind of schema of clues that you might need to um, help law enforcement uh, solve the identity of the person that you're looking for.
1: Deputy Coroner Bill Stevens hopes that they could pursue a number of new testing avenues with the Richland County Jane Doe. It all depends on when the analysis becomes advanced enough to work successfully with degraded or bleached samples. While Bill Stevens waits for technology to evolve, he's not been idle. He's sorted through hundreds of missing persons listings on NamUs and the Doe Network, searching for someone who might possibly be a match for the Richland County Jane Doe. One of the most promising leads came through a NamUs user, a citizen, just like so many of our listeners who spend their free time trying to match missing and unidentified persons. In this particular instance, the missing woman in question was Andrea Jean Coyle. Her physical stats are nearly identical to the Richland County Jane Doe's. Her age at the time of disappearance would have put her in the range, and she had extensive psychiatric inpatient treatment throughout her adult life. According to the Charlie Project, Doe Network and NamUs, Andrea, a Pennsylvania native, disappeared in 1978. There's very little information available from archival news sources on her case, but we were able to find a secondhand copy of an Altoona Mirror article published in 2008. In the piece, the author interviews Andrea's sister, Molly, who'd just submitted DNA swabs at the time of the article's publication, and she discussed her sister's history. She described Andrea as, quote, an introvert who'd experienced what she termed, quote, a nervous breakdown in 1971 and that Andrea had begun a series of shock treatments at a local facility. Quote, she said the hospital stopped at number eight out of 15 treatments a doctor had prescribed. Quote, my sister was destroyed mentally, Molly said, noting not much was known about mental illness at the time. Quote, she never did recover. We don't have any other details about Andrea's treatment or the agency she was or was not allowed in making decisions about her own care. We do know that she married for a brief period and was later hospitalized again in 1973. After that, she only had intermittent contact with her family as she spent much of her time traveling the U.S. and also served for a year in the U.S. military. Molly said that when Andrea had access and took her medications, things seemed stable. Per The Mirror, in late 1978, Andrea was living with her grandparents and attending classes. In fact, that December, she'd successfully completed her coursework and planned to go by the school to return her books and pick up her grades. She was carrying money, but no other identification. Her family never saw her again after that day. As the Mirror reported, she did not pick up her grades. The only other information the family could offer was that about a year after her disappearance, a letter arrived for Andrea. It was a mass mailing from the unification movement pejoratively called the Moonies. They're a religious group that many considered and still consider to be a cult. After that, though, there was nothing. Not until someone submitted Andrea as a possible match for the Richland County Jane Doe's case. When Bill Stevens saw Andrea's nameless entry, he was immediately struck by the physical similarities to the Richland County Jane Doe. They have very similar bone structure, coloring, and their noses, chins, and eyes seem identical. He thought he'd finally found a match.
2: When the user sent us the possible match of Miss Coyle, we were ecstatic because I mean she looked like her. I thought um, very, very similar image. Her her stats were demographically pretty, pretty similar. Age, age wise, height wise. We immediately submitted our dental records to the Namus forensic odontologist and then our local one as well to get multiple opinions on the comparison of Miss Coyle and Jane Doe. They were so similar that even the charting was was close. Um, so I sent them for two opinions and they ruled them out. I remember them calling both on the same day and just saying, they are so darn close, but th- there's no way just because of one filling or one, one tooth.
1: Bill says there are other possible matches on their radar, but that they can't rule the missing persons in or out because of a lack of material, be that DNA or dental records or other techniques his office might apply. He keeps track and he hopes the information will eventually develop. Like Bob Bromage from season six told us, there's always new technology coming down the line and these passionate cold case professionals, they won't stop. In our research, we came across a few other missing women whose photos and stats seem to roughly match the Richland County Jane Doe's. And though we shared them with Bill, we didn't find a photo so similar as Andrea's. We'll share those on our social media and website, though. Maybe there's someone out there listening who can offer more insight or a better match. In the meantime... The Richland County Jane Doe isn't the only unidentified person's case that the coroner's office is hoping to close. There's another case from 1983 that happened in proximity to the state hospital. Specifically, the Richland County John Doe of 1983, whose remains were found on a creek bank, quote, a short distance from the state hospital. Now, there may be no direct connection to Bull Street. According to local news reports, there was no male patient missing who matched the decedent's description, and he wasn't wearing state-issued clothing. Whether he had been a patient at one point or involved in deinstitutionalization or possibly home insecure, we can't say. There were no injuries found on his body, and his cause of death remains undetermined. He was a black male of about six feet, 185 pounds, and was wearing black shoes socks, pants, and a white undershirt or tank top. Fame forensic anthropologist John Rathbun worked on his case too, and he created a forensic bust in the early 1990s. We hope to tell you more about the Richland John Doe's case when the medical community is more available for interviews. This season was produced in the spring of 2020 as COVID-19 affected everything, including podcast production. For now, we'll share this John Doe's information on social media as well, and we hope to bring you more of the cases from Richland County in the future, because the coroner's office and its employees are determined to close each and every one. We'll end where we began, with a state hospital tied in one way or another to both of these unidentified persons. Bull Street shifted form and shape several more times consolidating buildings and other locations on its campus before its complete and final closure in 1996. Since then, the property has been sold and there are plans for a mixed-use development to take its place. When William Buckeye, the author of the South Carolina State Hospital Stories of Bull Street, interviewed its former employees, he found out that most of them didn't want to see that happen. I know there's been a push to change the hospital into a mixed-use, more modern space. And in your book, it seemed like your interview subjects were against that change.
5: The main reason for that is, like I said, that campus was there 200 years serving South Carolina's mentally ill population. It's a gorgeous campus that had very well-maintained grounds, beautiful trees, beautiful gardens, It was a beautiful place to go to walk around, and it's one of the prettier um, parcels of land in Columbia, for sure. Everybody was hoping that, or at least the former employees were hoping that some of the campus would continue to, to treat mentally ill patients in some way, shape, or form, or if not, that they would have some kind of mental health offices around there. A lot, of, a lot of former employees are disappointed that they're not going to use any, that they're not planning to use any of the campus to um, remember the patients who were there over the years and all the people who worked there. They're taking away everything that was there in, in everybody's memory. I know the need for profit, and I know people want to make money, and I know people want to attract young people down in, onto their campus. But I think it is a shame that they're not building at least a museum there to uh, commemorate all the patients who were treated there and the employees who worked so hard there.
1: If you have any information concerning the Richland County Jane Doe or any of the other open cases of Richland County, please contact the coroner's office at 803-576-1799. Special thanks to William Buckite and special thanks to Linda Doyle, who connected us with Bill Stevens, and to Bill himself. Also, we're grateful to the Richland County Coroner's Office for inviting us to share their cases with you. Next time on The Fall Line, we cover a new case, the Glen County Jane Doe, whose remains were discovered in Brunswick, Georgia, in August of 1990. That's the same area where Monica and Michael Bennett, who we covered in Season 2, disappeared. We'd like to thank all the listeners who have taken time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon or PayPal. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Written, researched, and hosted by Laura Norton with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Research assistants are Kim Fritz, Jess Watford, Lex Weathers, and Brian Waters. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. You can find Fall Line merchandise in the exactly right Podswag store. If you want to hear more of the Fall Line in the meantime, check out our new full-length early access episodes on Stitcher Premium.